0: Jerry Brudos is an infamous figure in the Pacific Northwest region of the United States. Though his reign of terror was short, he left a deep scar on that region's consciousness. He raped, he killed, he mutilated four young women, and not always in that order. Today we explore one of America's least discussed serial killers, the shoe fetish slayer. welcome 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 to the brand new episode of killing and hidden i'm your buddy brad former criminal defense attorney and i'll serve as your host yet again this week that backup host i hired just isn't pulling her weight i mean i promise she could be here and i'd pay her 20 grand I've done that. My wife is really upset about it, especially when she saw the check that said it was for personal services. But where is this woman? So regardless, I'm carrying this torch alone until I figure out where she disappeared off to. Glad y'all are reliable and y'all can be here even without $20,000 being paid to you. And no, that's not an option, so don't ask. I'm going to repay your loyalty today with a gruesome serial killer story. Yay! It's what you signed up for. You knew what this was before you joined up. Before we begin, I have to give a heartfelt thanks to one of our listeners, one of our Patreons, the first Patreon we have at our highest giving tier, listener Christine, is our Bigfoot. We love her. We appreciate her. She deserves a round of applause, and she will be compensated more than she ever pays to us with gifts with special opportunities and all of that and this just happens to coincide nicely with our push for 50 okay we want 50 patreons as quickly as possible and as soon as we reach that number as soon as we get 50 people signed up and you don't have to be like christine okay she's special She's she's like an angel descended from the heavens onto this earth. You don't have to be that good. Our lowest tier is $4 a month. It's less than a Big Mac. Sign up. If we get 50 people to sign up, I am taking this show on the road. We're going to go to a special, as of this time, undisclosed location and do a road show episode from a very famous spot. It will be fun. It will be a kick. My wife will hate it. Winners all the way around, unless you're married to me. Okay. I know y'all don't like it when I ramble on at the beginning. Tough noogies. This was something we had to do because Christine was so awesome. Sign up. Become one of our first 50, okay? We'll make it worth your while. And look, if when we reach 100, you can go to the Patreon page and see all this. When we reach 100... We're going to do something even more special. Go read about it. But it involves tongue kissing a doll. I don't does that sound that probably doesn't sound attractive. I probably should have kept that to myself, but it's out there now. I'm not going to edit it. I hate editing. All right, let's get on with the good stuff here. Jerome Henry Jerry Brudos was born in Webster South Dakota in January of 1939. His parents were Henry and Eileen Brutos. He was the younger of two sons and was instantly a disappointment to his mother because she desperately wanted a, a girl. She did not want Jerry. She wanted a girl. And she was not bashful at all about expressing her disappointment in his gender. How dare he come out of there with a penis, you know? Jerry was kind of naturally subjected to significant physical and emotional abuse by his mother all because of this. And she would dress him in in girls' clothing, A, to, I guess, satisfy some need she had, but B, she would do it in a way meant to humiliate him. Again, because this was something he could control, right? Now, the Brudos family moved around a lot when Jerry was little. They bounce all around the Pacific Northwest before finally settling down in Salem, Oregon. Good. Stories that come out of Salem are always happy ones, right? So, shout out to True Crime Cat Lawyer, actually, who, as you should know, covers crime stories out of the Pacific Northwest. She's done an episode on this case. It was her second episode. You should check it out. After you listen to mine, I'm scared if you go there, you won't come back, but... We're going to get through this. You're already here. Don't leave your seats. Let's finish this, okay? Now, at the tender age of five, Jerry found a pair of stiletto-heeled shoes while playing in the local junkyard, and he was just enchanted by them. All right, so we can play a game, if y'all want, of how many things are wrong with that last sentence, but that'll take forever. He brought these new treasures home with him, and he just was so enamored because he had never seen anything like this. They were... They had the tall heel and the shiny leather, and I think there were rhinestones on them. They were were just perfection to him. Now, he comes home, and he's playing with them, and he's wearing them, and his mom catches him, and she loses her mind over this. She tells him, take those things off, get rid of them, go put them back where you found them, you know, back at that playground that we call the county dump. Lying to that Jerry was wicked for playing with those shoes and then just beat the mess out of him, of course. Now, remember, this is the same woman that would dress him in women's clothing. So what difference does it make to her? But apparently a huge one. I don't know. Jerry, instead of taking them back to the dump, tried to hide them in his closet. Unfortunately, being a five-year-old, not the best hider, hasn't had much experience lying to his parents yet, you know. His mom found the shoes and then burned them in front of him to send a message that he could never, ever, ever play with things like that. So once again, we have a criminal getting stuck. We've talked about this many times, but here we've got Jerry becoming fixated on the shoes. He had to have them. He had to have them. So he starts stealing shoes to build his own collection. Uh, Even with his first grade teacher, she had two pairs of shoes. She always kept a spare in her desk. He was aware of that. One day he tried to sneak and steal them. He got caught. When the teacher asked why he was doing it, he just ran away with tears in his eyes. There was an incident where some family friends came over to visit. They were close friends, you know, and the daughter, who I think was a teenager, wasn't feeling real good so she went to go take a nap and they sent her to jerry's room so she's passed out there on his bed he sneaks in there and tries to untie her tennis shoes to steal them he didn't have an exit strategy obviously but he's young he's still developing his petty thievery skills as he got older jerry got better at stealing shoes and was able to develop his shoe collection and they decided to branch out a little. Shoes just weren't enough. Now, we, in addition to shoes, we're going to add in women's underwear. This came about in his teenage years. And apparently, from what I read, Jerry viewed these items as something like mysterious. And they woke up oh, these strange feelings inside of him. And, you know, he's going through puberty. He's got all these hormones. He's living in a messed up environment. He's not developing very healthy feelings, as you can probably imagine. And then you've got Jerry's mom still be, being as awesome as you imagine. She's disgusted by the fact that he's maturing, becoming you know sexually awakened. And anything that hinted at him being sexual just disgusted her. And she would make a—just pitch a fit about it. Just go ballistic about it, okay? And in fact, whenever, what's the kindest way I can say this as a dad, whenever there's a stain that was left on his bed sheets, she would force him to instantly remove his bed sheets and wash them by hand so she didn't have to deal with it. Again, more evidence of how healthy the environment Jerry was raised in. So let's summarize so far what we've got. We're in Salem. We've got a mom rejecting a son. We've got a mom abusing the son from a young age. We've got a toddler with a foot fetish that grows into his teenage years into an underwear fetish. And a mother that wants to destroy any sense of sexuality he has. And he's been forced to dress up like a girl through most of his younger years. These ingredients do not make for a tasty smoothie. So we jump from this train to the one that carries Jerry's criminal escapades. Now, Jerry started off with mostly innocent stuff in his teenage years. Like, you know, he would run into girls his own age and try to take their shoes. By run into, I mean like run into, like juggernaut style, like push them down and try to steal their shoes. Not a brilliant plan, okay? Okay. I like that we're seeing Jerry slowly develop here, um, you know, in a perverse way, seeing his development as a criminal. But boy, he started off bad, didn't he? Well, Jerry eventually has an interest in escalating his actions to the felonious sort. And he tries to make a plan. He really did. His first plan for a felony... (laughs) I don't mean to keep laughing because I know this is like serious stuff, but this is just so ridiculous. His first plan was he went and dug a hole in the side of the hill and he decided that he was just going to kidnap girls and put them in that hole and they'd serve as his sex slaves. That's where the plan ended, okay? It's not exactly on par with Hannibal outsmarting the Roman army, but it's the best Jerry can do. So, in 1956, at the tender age of 17, he is no longer a child. He is almost legally an adult, and this is his plan. Bless his heart. Jerry abducted a teenage girl with a knife, beat her up, and forced her to pose for naked pictures. He was a shutterbug. I didn't mention that, but he liked taking pictures. Now, the way this all went down was, I couldn't confirm this, but the rumors were, She was one of his panty-snatching victims. She was complaining about it, and he said, well, I know how to get your panties back. Just come to my house. She comes over to his house. He says, you know, hey, hang out here in the living room. I'll be right back. (laughs) He goes into his bedroom. He comes out of his bedroom wearing a black mask and holding a knife, forces her to take these pictures. And then he goes back into his room takes off the mask, puts away the knife, and then walks back out as Jerry and says that he was abducted by this man in a black mask who locked him in a barn. And was she okay? And shockingly, nobody bought this story. Uh, So again, we see progress, right? Jerry's now trying to cover up his crimes. He's, He's thinking a little bit ahead. Still terrible ideas. And you know... I'm always rooting for criminals to be dumb because that's the only way we catch them. So you go, Jerry. Now, because of this, you know, that's we as a society frown upon taking a knife to a teenage girl's throat and forcing her to take naked pictures when she doesn't want to. So the authorities got involved and they ultimately decided that, look, this kid, he doesn't need to go to prison. He needs to go to a psychiatric facility. And, you know, really, that was a smart move, especially in the 50s, right? Here, we're trying to get this boy right in his head. But since, you know, I mean, we're dedicating a whole episode to him. You already know I've called him a serial killer. So, you know right now this, this doesn't go well, right? Well, it doesn't go well. He spent nine months receiving treatment for schi- the the schizophrenia he was diagnosed with. And Jerry disclosed to a psychiatrist that, you know, he had this little bit of a hidden desire to put, you know, kidnap girls in a giant freezer and then go to his death freezer to kind of reposition the girls into different sexually explicit positions like dolls. I guess dolls whose limbs don't totally freeze, I guess. I don't know. Again, as we can see with Jerry, his plans aren't the best. The doctors heard all this, and they saw his previous conduct, and do you know what their solution was? Well, he's just a little bit immature. He'll grow out of this, so we're going to let him go. They green-lighted his release after nine months. So that's just kind of like a little lemon spritz for our terrible smoothie, right? Just add a little zestiness in there, into that mess that we've got to drink down. So Jerry gets released back into the free world, and objectively he seems to have his life straightened out. He finishes high school. He joins the Army like any good American boy in the 1950s. He had some issues in the Army. He, you know, was still seeing a therapist because of his schizophrenia. And the psychiatrist he was meeting with, he kind of, you know, shared some details about, oh, gosh, I can't wait till I can lock up some broads and force them to be my sex slaves. So, you know, Uncle Sam and... Jerry kind of had a amical parting of the ways after that. I'd love to know more details about exactly how that went down. Um, You know, to steal from arrested development, maybe he thought army had half days and they really didn't. Anyway, the best I could find was just that one report. Um, And he, he, he styled it more so as not him necessarily kidnapping the women, but, you know, being seduced by a woman And her being in control and then somehow her voluntarily becoming a sex slave. I don't know. You know, but Jerry, you know, he gets discharged and he continues trying to be normal. Just, it's a little bit, it's not much, but the boy tries. So living in the civilian world now, he had to move back home with his parents. And you know how wonderful his mom is. She said, we don't have any room at the inn. Now, granted, his older brother was living at home, and he had a room. So Jerry was forced to live in the shed out back. Yeah. Well, Jerry was smart. He went to Oregon State and got licensed by the FCC to become a radio engineer. And so he got a job at a local radio station as an engineer. And while he was there, he kind of managed to seduce this woman who also worked at the radio station. You know, she kind of saw him as, oh, he's an engineer. He must be doing well for himself. She didn't know about the crazies. Um, And, you know, Jerry does what a young man does in the 50s. He marries a special girl. Um, But, you know, in Jerry's case, I'm guessing it's the first girl he knocked over who didn't freak out when he stole her shoes, maybe. Perhaps she thought it was cute, perhaps a little sweet. Um, She was young and naive. Her name was Darcy Metzler. She was only 17, but they married in 1961, and they moved around a little bit while uh, Jerry looked for work. They ended up going to Portland for a spell before moving back to Salem. They ended up having two kids together. And Darcy, like, really drenched Jerry in attention, which probably meant a lot to Jerry. You know, growing up with a mother who kind of, you know, hated him, having a wife that was willing to kind of dote on him and take care of him, really, that had to mean a lot to him. And, you know, it, it made him look good. It made him feel good. His neighbors said that, you know, hey, that Jerry guy, he's a really good family man. He cares a lot about his family. He's real loving. And another thing, we don't ever see him smoke. We don't ever see him drink. But, you know, inside the four walls, things were different. They weren't bad necessarily, just strange. Okay, well, maybe bad too. Um, See, Jerry wanted to be in total control of the house. And because of this, he had certain demands for his wife, which she agreed to. Uh, one of his big demands that made him really happy was that she was required to do all of the housework naked. Well, not totally naked, to be fair. She, she had to wear high heels while she did it. And, you know, Jerry enjoyed this so much that he would take pictures of her while she was doing it. Because this is just how he lives his life. I don't know. If this is shocking to you, welcome to the show. It's obviously your first episode. We're happy to have you as a listener. Now, Jerry also had kind of a, it's described as a garage. I think of it more as a workshop, I guess. It's a detached building on the property they, they bought. And he said, look, this is, I need this space to be off limits from everyone. Totally not suspicious at all, right? You know, wives, if your husband ever tells you don't enter a specific room under any circumstances, totally trust him because I'm sure whatever's going on there, 100% on the up and up. Now, Jerry claimed he was using it as a dark room, and if his wife just busts in, it would ruin his photographs. God forbid. Now, he even went so far to install an intercom system so she could, you know, with a push of a button, reach out to him. And check in on them without having to bust through the doors. And he got to keep this, you know, seal over his precious little kingdom. Now, Jerry eventually fell out of being a radio engineer and fell into being an electrician. And he was actually considered a really good electrician by most people. He would get a lot of jobs. uh, But he had a hard time keeping the jobs because he just had an odd personality. I know I don't need to state that, but he was just a little weird. You know, you didn't want to be trapped in the elevator with this guy. Being an electrician also gave him an opportunity to explore houses throughout the neighborhood. Because, you know, little Jerry's still about his foot fetish. Or, I'm sorry, shoe fetish. Oh, and the underwear fetish, right? Can't forget the underwear part. Uh, so literally, Jerry would go to a house, do some work while he was there, poke around the closet maybe open up a dresser drawer or two, and then he would return at night and break into the house just to steal the shoes and or underwear. So I know you're saying, Brad, okay, this guy is kind of wackadoo. I get it, but I'm not hearing anything that makes him a murderer. Okay, we'll skip ahead to when the murdering starts. So, but let me, let me, let me, let me put it in context. Okay. Don't rush me. Let me do this my way because it, it'll work. I promise. So after a few years of marriage, Darcy kind of got tired of this whole Jerry being in complete control thing. And she stopped paying him so much attention and started focusing more on their children. At first they just had a daughter. And so, She focused a lot on the daughter. And that hurt Jerry because he really appreciated the attention. Darcy also got a little tired of Jerry wearing women's clothing around the house. Yeah. Yeah. That shouldn't be shocking, but for some reason I was still surprised by that. Uh, It ended up where... Darcy kind of forced Jerry to move out of their bedroom. So he was sleeping downstairs. Um, You know, she had the bedroom upstairs. And actually, when this happened while she was pregnant with their second child, their first son. And man, Jerry was excited to have a son. And, you know, she goes into labor. He takes her to the hospital. And as they're going in, Darcy says, Jerry, you ain't coming in that delivery room. And he's all like, "What?" And she's like, "Nope, you're not going in there. You got to wait in the waiting room. I am not having this baby while you're in there." Well, this, you know, the erosion of his marriage was wearing him down, and then you kind of have this moment that a lot of p- people point to as like the breaking moment for for Jerry he had been complaining about, you know, the stress that he just couldn't get rid of no matter how he tried. And then the stress was leading to these migraines that were just killing him. And then the migraines became so bad that he was blacking out. And, you know, the only thing that seemed to help was going out prowling, stealing shoes until he found a new obsession. So while Jerry was out on, the town or out in the neighborhood. I don't know the right way to phrase it, but either way he's out doing what Jerry does when he's walking down the street and this girl catches his eye. Okay. Well, not so much the girl, but the shoes she was wearing, you know, of course. So Jerry just kind of kept his distance and followed her all the way home. Then he sat outside her house. He sat outside this woman's house Over shoes. Um, Waited for her to, you know, go to bed, turn off the lights. Then he broke into her house and tried to steal the shoes. Well, as you could expect with Jerry, being a Jerry, he wasn't so stealthy. He woke up the girl, and the only thing he knew to do to keep her quiet was to strangle her. Now, He choked her until she was unconscious, not till she was dead. But then, apparently, having this warm body in his arms that was unconscious and totally under his control kind of became a thing for him. And so, you know, he decided he was going to rape her to see how that experience was. And then he left. I mean, with the shoes, of course, because, my goodness, if he did all this and didn't get the shoes we'd be worried about him, right? And and later, you know, when he's in prison, Jerry would kind of admit that this was like some sort of criminally charged awakening for him. Just having this woman in his arms. It just made him so excited. It's, It's The way he described it, it's like when my dogs hear the word treat. You know, like they would commit war crimes to get a treat. And I think that's how Jerry was when it came to going after women at this point. You know, just for the sex on his terms. And again, to clarify, the woman lived. This was not his first murder victim. She was just merely choked unconscious, which I guess is a minor victory considering where we're about to go. Now, the next woman Jerry assaulted actually came to him, if you can believe that. 19-year-old Linda Salson, Slauson, I kind of, yeah, Slauson, that's surprisingly hard to say, knocked on Jerry's door. She was an encyclopedia salesperson and had an appointment to meet with another family to sell some encyclopedias, but it was a rainy day and she was walking the neighborhood and the address got smudged and she just happened to see Jerry in his front yard, asked, for help finding this house. And he said, well, you know what? I've been thinking about buying some encyclopedias for my kids. And so, of course, Linda's like, boom, double the sale. Let's do this. So they go inside the house, and you've still got, you know, his wife living upstairs. The kids are living upstairs. He's still got the downstairs portion. And he says, you know, the kids... Are kind of loud. It may be hard to talk. It's getting close to dinner time. They'll be running up and downstairs getting food. Do you want? Do you mind talking to me in my garage? And Linda's like, "Boom, no problem. Let's do it." So they go out to the garage, his sacred space, no one's allowed to enter. And you know, she's walks in and kind of looks around, how you do, and how, as she's surveying the situation. He clocks her over the head with something and knocks her down, jumps on top of her and strangles her. This time he did strangle the woman to death. And again, remember, this is going on with his kids at home. This is going on with his wife at home. So he's just fearless, right? So Jerry takes Linda's now deceased body. And he's developed this contraption in his workshop where he can kind of hang a body, not, not in as gruesome a way as that sounds, but essentially it would allow, it would support a body so that he could have the body model underwear and shoes. And so he would take pictures, you know, he, hung up Linda and put her in some different shoes he had, put her in some different underwear and took pictures and was just giddy about it, I'm sure, in a sick sort of way. Now, Jerry didn't have that death freezer of his dreams yet, you know? So he couldn't keep the body like he wanted. But as a compromise in his mind, he decided, well, I'll keep one of her feet. And so the prick sits there and takes a hacksaw and cuts off her left foot. Yeah. He puts the foot back in the shoe she was she came in in and stores that in the freezer. Okay? Then he takes Linda's body and he ties it to a car engine with nylon rope and copper piping. I don't know how. Uh, I didn't get into the details. I guess Army trained him how to do this. Throws the whole mess into the bed of his truck, then drives down the road a Spell to a nearby river and just dumps her into the water. Now, he did use that foot periodically to model different shoes he collected and take pictures of them. Now, sadly, you know, the the title of serial killer is not just given away. It's something that has to be earned, which means we're not done with Jerry and his crimes. We're not done hearing about his perverted desires. His next victim was a young lady by the name of Karen Sprinkler. He kidnapped her at gunpoint from the parking lot of a local department store. He took her back to his garage and forced her to try on different underwear and shoes while he photographed her. She was alive during this. Jerry then said, you know, you gotta have sex with me. She wasn't really wild about it, and so he strangled her to death, not with his bare hands, but with his little standing up dead person device, because apparently he had worked this leather noose-type thing into it. And he could basically have it do all the work of her being choked to death in front of her while he got to watch. Yeah. He also, I'm sorry, this is getting gruesome. If there's any little ears listening, I probably should have warned you earlier and I didn't. I apologize. He also takes Karen's dead body and cuts off her breasts. And he does this so that he can use them to make resin molds that he uses as paperweights. He then, after doing all this, decides now's the time to have sex with the body. Which he does multiple times, apparently. So he's a necrophiliac on top of everything else that's wrong with Jerry. He gets that fun little Medal of Honor. Then it's time to dispose of Karen. Fortunately, he doesn't cut off anything else. He ties her to another car engine with the copper piping and the nylon ropes, and he throws her into the same river. Oh, and Jerry did this while wearing women's clothing. Like, from the abduction to the dumping, he's wearing his silk panties and the whole get-up. Because this is what has to happen in our nightmares. His next victim was Jan Whitney. She was 23, and it's one of those wrong place, wrong time situations. This poor girl was driving down Interstate 5, which Jerry traveled through a lot, and her car broke down. Jerry was kind enough to stop and help her, and he said, "I I can fix this. You know, don't waste your money on a tow truck. If you're, you know, just." Come with me. We'll go back to my house. We'll get my tools. We'll come back out here. We'll fix it, and you'll be on your way. It really won't take long. It's not that big a deal. And, of course, Jan, being a young woman, so excited to have this man come help her. And, you know, he's talking, oh, I'm a family man. I got kids. I'm married and all that. Just all-American boy here, right? Well, they don't even make it to his house. Jerry attacks her on the way there. And he manages to strangle her to death, not with his bare hands, not with his messed up contraption in his garage, but with some sort of leather strap. So I'm guessing a belt, but they couldn't they couldn't narrow it down beyond a leather strap. He then just drives on home with Jan's dead body sitting in the front seat like nothing's wrong. He goes into his garage, he hooks her up to his little pulley mechanism model, has her model for him, if that's the right way to describe it. Of course, he then had sex with Jan's dead body. This time when he was done, that's when he cut off one of her breasts. Again, for a resin mold, which he would use as a paperweight in his house. So then Jerry has to dispose of Jan's body, and how do we do that? Here's a twist. He he didn't use a car engine this time. He had a big old piece of railroad iron. He tied her to that, tossed her in the same river. He also, during this trip, decided to toss out Linda's foot because it had gotten a little too, you know, rotten for his purposes. This guy's just incredible, isn't he? All right. Linda Saley is his last known victim. Thank goodness. She was 22. She, too, was kidnapped from a parking lot, this time in April of 1969. She experienced death just like the other women. Jerry raped her, strangled her. But he decided not to mutilate this body. He found that her breasts were too pink. I don't know what that means, but apparently that was a deal breaker for Jerry. Instead, he does something even more sadistic to the extent you can do something sadistic to a dead body and says, "You know what? I've got this degree in in engineering. I know a lot about electricity. I want to see what happens if I run electricity through her." Yeah. So, He hooks her up to these wires and runs all these electrical currents through it. And his goal was to see if he could make her, like, convulse and bounce around, you know. And he has her hanging from his little pulley system in this horrible contraption in his garage. And he's just heartbroken because his plan doesn't work. She doesn't move. She doesn't jerk around. She just sits there and takes the electricity in her dead body form. Now he's got to get rid of Linda. We've used, what, two car engines. We've used some sort of railroad iron. We're running out of big, heavy metal things. So this time, he has to toss her into a river tied to a transmission. Now, interestingly, while the girls' disappearances were being investigated, police actually were treating these as true investigations and that's noteworthy only because what's going on in the world, or at least in America during the late 1960s? Well, you've got the whole counterculture movement going on. And you do legitimately have teenage and college age men and women running off to San Francisco or to what other, other place where they could live in a commune and just bouncing on their families without telling them where they were going. So during this time, a lot of missing cases, a lot of missing persons' cases are not being investigated with the same zeal that you would expect. But police noticed that, look, we, we've got a girl that sold encyclopedias. We've got another girl who is in medical school. And then we've got two girls who were in school and working. These were not the counterculture types. These weren't dirty hippies, you know as they were probably thinking. And so they investigated all these cases together. Now, on top of these four murders, and of course we had the choking beforehand, there were two other almost victims. These occurred, these two were targeted in the two days before Linda Saley, his last victim, was kidnapped. So they were in April of 1969, too. There was a 24-year-old by the name of Sharon Wood, who he tried to kidnap from a parking lot, just like he did Linda. But when he pulled his gun, which was a toy gun, by the way, when he pulled that out, she, Sharon freaked out and just kicked him multiple times in the crotch and then ran off screaming And about the same time, another car came passing by, so Jerry had to limp to his vehicle and get away. Go, Sharon. You are one bad woman, and I love it. I love it. The other almost victim he had was just as feisty, except this was Gloria Smith, and she was only 15, He apparently was driving through a neighborhood, saw her playing, and literally got out of his car and tried to just drag her into his car. And she fought like the dickens, kicked him, bit him, spit on him, all this, and made such a ruckus that neighbors started coming out of their house to see what was going on because it sounded like a gang war. And of course, once Jerry sees all these witnesses coming out, He lets her go, hops in his car, drives off. Now, I was able to confirm that Gloria's situation was reported to the police. I don't know about Sharon's. But that helped the police because another potential victim where they're slowly gaining more and more information about who this guy is. And it's helpful. And it should be noted at this point, too, because I want to make sure that you really don't like this guy (laughs) which if you still like him after all this you need to reevaluate your life you need to have a serious sit down conversation with yourself and say what am i doing wrong but just to make sure we can put a cherry on top of this hate sunday and you're not going to be surprised by this but i'll just confirm the fact he his favorite activity to relax would be to dress up in women's clothing typically just the underwear and shoes sit in his garage, and flip through his little photo album book he had made of all the dead women, and would masturbate. Now remember, Linda Saley was his last known victim. She was kidnapped and killed in April of 1969. Well, in May of 1969, guess what happens? Two fishermen out on the river, they stumble across this big old transmission sticking out of the water, with Linda tied to it, police were called. They decided to do just a cursory search of the area to collect evidence and all that. And in doing that search, they discovered a second victim, Karen Sprinkler, tied to one of the uh, the car engines. Right. So, <laughs> police say, "Okay, all right, we've we found where the bodies are being dumped." let's Let's focus our search down a little bit more. And they were able to key in on Jerry pretty quickly because for some reason, I don't know why, but I'm not here to explain how this man's mind works. He didn't live far from Oregon State University, and so he decided somehow he got a copy of their uh, student uh, phone directory. And he started calling girls in the directory at random. And he would say, hey, my name's Jerry. I'm a former Vietnam vet. You want to go on a date? Shockingly, this didn't work very well. He got lots of no's. But one of the women was so kind of creeped out by this that she contacted the police. And they said, look, would you be willing to call him back and agree to go on a date with them. Now, the police weren't sending her to meet Jerry. They were going to have a female officer dressed up and go meet Jerry because Jerry hasn't met this girl, right? He's just calling numbers at random. He doesn't know who it is. So she calls him back and she's, you know, oh Jerry, you called me the other day and I've thought about it and I'd really like to go on a date with somebody I've never met who's a Vietnam vet. So he's all excited because, you know, blood can only control one part of a man's body at a time. And he swarms off to Oregon state to meet this chick. He meets the female officer. They flirt for a little bit. They're starting to leave when all of a sudden there's just this huge police force that swarms down on him. And he's arrested So after he's arrested here in May, of course, police, a few days later in June, go and search his house, and guess what they find there? Well, they find some nylon rope that's similar to what the victims were tied to the car parts with. They find some of the copper wiring that was used to tie victims. Um, They found some uh, photographs that Jerry had taken of you know, women modeling underwear and shoes totally isn't illegal, except they noticed that some of them kind of looked like they were decaying. Yeah, he didn't keep these. I I didn't express that well enough. He didn't like, you know, just do a photo shoot and dump the bodies. He'd keep them for like a week. Um, he found, uh, the trophies he kept from the victims. Let's call it that other than the foot, obviously. And, uh, Lots and lots and lots of shoes and underwear throughout his garage. After being arrested and charged with the four murders, along with several other ancillary crimes, Jerry initially pleaded not guilty by, you know, insanity defense, basically. In Alabama, we call it not reason by mental disease or defect. I don't know what they call it in Oregon, but... He cray-cray was his plea. He was evaluated by no fewer than seven psychiatrists. And all of them said, look, yeah, he's got issues, but he knew right from wrong. He planned all this. This was intentional. He's fit to stand trial. So after learning that he wasn't going to get much leniency from the doctors, three days before his trial, he decides to plead guilty. And unfortunately, he could only plead guilty to three of the four murders because despite their investigations, police couldn't find any evidence indicating that he had murdered Linda Swanson other than his story, other than his confession she wasn't in any of the photographs they found they couldn't find any evidence of her being in the house and you know remember this is 1969 we don't have forensics at that time like we do today so they couldn't you know pull out dna you know you know they couldn't look for blood stains like we can today all that stuff was was just wasn't there so they could only go with the evidence they had they never found her body So they couldn't tie her to the rope or the piping. So he could only plead guilty to those three murders, which sucks, which is bad. But in exchange for his plea, they agree not to seek the death penalty, but Jerry would have to serve three consecutive life sentences. And he was locked up for good on June 27th, 1969. Think how quickly that went. That doesn't happen in today's world. You get charged with murder in today's world, it's three or four years before you see a courtroom. He was arrested in May and was put in jail for good on June 27th. Now, Jerry was technically eligible for parole under Oregon law. And he would be up for parole every two years. But in 1995, the Oregon parole board basically said, look, you're not getting parole ever. So we're not holding any more of these hearings. We're required by law to bring you in every two years, but we're just going to bring you in for an informal hearing, and you're going to have to convince us that you deserve a true hearing. And so every two years, he'd show up and say, oh, man, these doctors are treating me. They're making me so much better. I think I really deserve a chance to show y'all that I can be trusted in the free world. And the board members would look at him and laugh and say, all right, get out of here. He expressed frustration to his fellow inmates and to reporters that would speak to him that, you know, he wasn't given a fair shake here because he's received all this treatment. He's a different person than he was when he murdered these women, and that should be taken into account. As I mentioned, the parole board said you're never getting paroled. And that turned out to be true because Jerry died from liver cancer on March 28, 2006. When he passed, he held the title of being Oregon's longest serving inmate. What an honor. Now, some of y'all will probably be happy to know that his time in prison was not pleasant. He was despised by his fellow inmates. They would often assault him in very creative ways. When he died and they cleaned out his cell, Jerry's belongings included a massive stack of women's shoe catalogs, which apparently he told other inmates very proudly that that was his personal snatch of pornography. Now, he did make some quality use of his time, I guess we could say. He managed to earn two bachelor's degrees while he was in prison, one in counseling, and one in general sciences. He also enjoyed clogging the state and federal courts with frivolous pleadings, arguing that he was improperly convicted for at least one of the murders. Yes, one of the ones he confessed to, one of the ones that police found pictures of in his garage one of the ones where he cut off some appendage. Now in case you were curious what about Darcy? How did Darcy not know all this was going on? Well the police thought that too and actually she was charged with being accessory to all these crimes and Darcy said look once we separated in the house. I didn't know what that man was doing and I didn't care. I was focused on my kids. I didn't I never went out to his garage. Never once asked him what he did out there. We rarely spoke, we didn't eat dinner together. And in fact, they they for some reason the state only charged her as an accessory to one of the crimes and I forget which murder it was. I apologize for that. But it just so happens that the one they picked to charge her with, she and the kids were out of town for nearly the entire month. And so she went to trial and the jury deliberated for like seven hours, I think, before finding her not guilty. As soon as she was declared not guilty, seriously, like she was found not guilty, you know, on a Wednesday or Thursday, something like that, that following week. She filed for divorce, she got divorced, she changed her name, she changed her children's names, and in October of 1969, she moved out of Oregon and has effectively never been heard of again. And that is our case. Aren't serial killers always so interesting? Now, in case you were curious, Like I mentioned at the top of the show, Jerry was known as the shoe fetish killer. He was also known as the lust killer. There's a fictionalized version of Jerry that appears in the Netflix show Mindhunter. It's in episodes 7 and 8 of season 1. Jerry also served in part as the inspiration for the character Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs. And the John Waters film, if you're into John Waters' work, uh, the film Polyester focuses on disturbed teenager with an odd foot fetish, and it's believed that that was inspired by Jerry's antics. So, uh, analysis, yeah. Jerry was a monster, and that's my analysis. (laughs) Um, You know, he, in my opinion, rightly or wrongly, Jerry his horrible nature was formed or at least solidified by the horrible treatment he received from his mother. I'm not saying it's her fault. Jerry did all this. He made the decisions. He wanted to mutilate these women, but she treated him horribly. And he endured some horrible treatments at her hands from birth. And every psychiatrist he met with noted that he had tremendous anger towards his mother and that spilled out towards the female gender in general he really really took offense to how he was raised how he was raised he was very deeply hurt by how his mother did everything she could to humiliate him while at the same time praising his older brother And again, it's for something he can't control. I get that. I don't get the killing and mutilating bodies. I get being ticked off at your mom for treating you that way. You got to say thank goodness for those fishermen, right? Thank goodness they decided to fish in that river because Jerry showed no indications of stopping, right? I mean, he was just going to keep going and keep going and keep going. And he really seemed to have the potential to reach the ranks of, you know, Richard Ramirez or the Zodiac Killer, maybe even Ted Bundy type levels. I mean, he was just this big, mean ball of jellied hate when it came to women. I will say, because I'm a bleeding heart defense attorney, it bothers me that Jerry was subjected to such horrible violence in prison I think because of that, he almost viewed the liver cancer as a sweet escape from the hell he was living in. You know, if you're listening and you want to commit a crime, I I say this just from my experience, and and I think it's true nationwide. Don't, Don't commit crimes against kids and don't commit gruesome crimes against women. You know, if you go in there for rape, you won't be liked. If you go in there for rape, and murdering, and butchering a woman, you're going to attract some attention, and it won't be positive attention, okay? You know, in general, prisoners, your fellow prisoners don't care what you've done, unless you've done it to a kid, or you've done something gruesome to a woman, and the attention you'll grab from them is like the mud hole stomping type of attention, the, you're going to be sodomized by a plunger type of attention, And God help you, if you abuse and butcher a child, there will be a karmic debt to pay like you cannot imagine. So, all right. Well, we've talked about some fun things, haven't we? Yeah, we're going to end the show there, but we're going to put a seal on it with a nice little palate cleanser. And we have an extra mature one this week, so I hope you appreciate it. And it's actually one of our better ones recently, in my opinion. Not that I criticize Eli's choices, but all right what why do ducks have tail feathers this is our palate cleanser why do ducks have tail feathers they have tail feathers to cover up their butt quacks i like that one that's a good one it's a funny one so i typically end our episodes with encouragement to go do something good in the world right I've tried really hard this week because of this episode to find the cheesiest inspirational quote for you. Something that goes beyond that live, laugh, love one or whatever it is. If you can even really consider that a quote. Um, You know, by the by while I'm rambling, remember, push to 50 uh, Patreons. If you haven't left us a review on Apple Podcasts, please do that. We'd love your five stars. We've almost got 200 reviews. We'll get there someday. But anyway, all right. here's the quote I found. All right? Life is not about waiting for the storm to pass, y'all. It's about learning to dance in the rain. Oh, you can just feel the shivers. Aren't you inspired? That was three or four therapy sessions in two sentences right there. I have just made your week, possibly your month. You're welcome. Now, just... Pay us back with Patreon memberships and kind reviews. Maybe buy a t-shirt or two from our merch store. You know, because you, know, go, you you know what to do, right? Go dance in the rain like no one's watching. Is that what? No, that's not what I said. Okay, that one may be a little too too cheesy. Um, I'm going to stop. I'm going to be quiet. We're going to end it here. Love y'all. I'll shut up. Brad out. Thank you for listening to hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share. Questions? Email us at info at kmhpodcast.com.